Welcome to What's Korean Cinema episode 60 on Ilmari. Before there was the sassy girl pouring spaghetti on top of people's heads, events that changed cinema, the episode luminous Jun Ji Hyun starred in Ilmari about the mailbox that is a portal to two years earlier. So we're going back to Korean cinema in the year 2000. And I'm going to be here with me as our resident Korean cinema expert and Jun Ji Hyun obsessive since. Uh, Forever. <laughs> Paul Quinn, hello. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, how you doing? It's uh, one, of those, um, one of those things uh, that uh, sticks uh, with you. Do you remember if you saw her breakout role and this sort of cons- in consecutive order, or did, did it take a few years before you before you watched this particular film, After My Sassy Girl? Or, or was it reverse order, even? It was My Sassy Girl first. It was the first thing I'd seen her in, and... Uh, straight away there are a, a couple of actresses that are just there's something about them and i just instantly went what else has she done give me them now i've pretty much followed her career since you know i can remember going to a local dvd shop in camden in the middle of london and seeing just sitting behind the counter a film with daisy written on it and it was just like it's her it's her you know and i hadn't even been looking for it i just bought everything I could find, you know, so yeah, she's wonderful. Love her. It's uh, one of her least acclaimed films, uh, though, uh, Daisy, but I suppose uh, she did okay. It, it, it's um, it's a Hong Kong Korean film. It was directed by Andrew Lau, uh, Infernal Affairs, Storm Riders, and so forth. Uh, but I know it wasn't that uh, well-received at the time, even if she was. There are, there are a lot of issues with it, not least that one of the characters actually continues to narrate the film after he's dead. But that's by the by, not a great, not a great film. But she is just, she's she's great in it, even though she's mute for about half of it. For all your podcast on fire network needs, including the back catalog of uh, what's Korean cinema, go to the website podcastonfire.com. Check out uh, our presence on social media, whether our Facebook discussion group uh, or our tweets over at at podcast on fire, and I tweet under the handle at so good reviews uh, a variety of uh, things including pushing the shows obviously so um, i'm gonna keep it short and hand over to paul for a plug of uh, your website and your socials if you like well for any of you that don't already know me i'm paul i run hangocelluloid.com go to the website for korean film reviews interviews transcriptions of talks i, I give quite a few talks around and and about the place, so they're all transcribed on there, etc., etc. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Celluloid. I'm on Twitter as at Celluloid. Um, but all those links are on the, the main homepage of the site, so just pop over there if you're bored, have a little look. Have you uh, been able, through official or unofficial sources at the time of recording, uh, watch films like Decision to Leave and the... What is it? Is it The Roundup? Is that the sequel to The Outlaws or is it The Checkup? The Roundup, right? The, round, the Roundup <laughs> with Madon Siak. I, I have. I've seen both and they were by legitimate means. Sadly, it wasn't through the UK side of things, but, you know, I'll take it from wherever I can get it. Um, I was blown away by both, obviously, 
Decision to Leave. I'm not going to give anything away, but Decision to Leave is much more my film than The Roundup is. But, you know, Manton Siak or Don Lee, if you like, um, can always be relied upon to, to pack a punch, quite literally. So, is it, a, is it a lesser film than The Outlaws or just kind of on the same level and that's fine? I, I'd read it pretty similar. I mean, they're, they're individual in their own right, but, you know, level-wise, I'd say they're one's as good as the other, shall we say. So, yeah, both definitely worth a look, but Decision to Leave is pretty masterful. I'd, I'd urge you to, to see it if you can get a chance. Yeah, I'm obviously gonna eventually, but I haven't really read anything about anything. And I've been able to avoid it quite easily in terms of even reading a plot. Certainly have not watched a trailer for it. Uh, and I don't know why. Maybe it's not that terrible to spoil a little bit, but I don't, I don't, don't know why. I'm just gonna go into it uh, blank, you know, knowing that I think it's uh, on a good roll. I mean, I did, did go back to movies like uh, uh, I'm a Cyborg and That's Okay, and that really did not uh, suit my personal tastes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe it was always a divisive film, so I know he's not perfect. Uh, Park Chan-wook is certainly not perfect, but I think it's been on a good roll uh, in uh, like 2010 and onwards, uh, whether he's uh, UK TV show, The Match Girl, or Drama Girl, rather, uh, and uh, obviously Handmaiden and... Uh, yeah. What did he make after Handmaiden, if not this? I'm blanking on... Or, or, or is a decision to leave the first thing he did after yeah, Handmaiden? Pretty, pretty, his, first, his first major thing, I mean, he started a couple of shorts because he Oh, oh yes, he did, a new, uh, he did a new iPhone short as well. You know, which you can always rely on. I mean, I, I, out of all his work, you know, you, you know Night Fishing's still one of my favourite of his films. Um, he's a lover-hate, you know, and not not hate, but love it, love one movie feel okay about the next, love the next one, etc, etc. He's always been like that for me. So, you know, for him to have the hand made and decision to leave that I both think are superlative, he's, he's, he's on a good roll. It was funny, I haven't watched the latest iPhone short, but it's clear now that the, the phones have gotten so good that uh, if he would have been quiet about it, no one would have said like, this looks like a phone short, while night fishing is much more it, it was shot on an older phone. I don't think we've ever been able to see it in HD. I don't know if it was even shot in HD. But it certainly looks rough, you know, like a phone film. As far as I can remember, the state of sort of iPhones at that point, it wasn't the way they are now where everything's, you know, HD or 4K or whatever. But, you know, not to detract from it, great film. Okay, okay, let's move on to the review and uh, our 2000 film. At hand here, Ilmer Ilmari. So again, I'm going to use both pronunciations uh, subconsciously, but that's the film from 2000 and plot from Letterboxd. In the year 1999, young woman Unjo, played by Jun Jiehyun, leaves her quaint seaside house and returns to the city, leaving in the mailbox a card for the next owner with instructions to forward any mail of hers to the new address. In the year 1997, Jaded young architect Sung Hyun, played by Lee Jung-jae, moves into the same house and finds the letter in 1997. His reply, which he slips into the mailbox, finds its way to her in 1999, beginning a parallel time love story separated by a span of two years. This, in my eyes, I knew of this film by name and that, that she was in it, uh, but never seen it until now. But you, you sort of knew that or felt like rather that this must be a key a big a massive korean cinema new wave title that's that's just essential popular and made all the money that year but let's not assume 
let's instead try and break down what the uh, audience and critics' response was to Il Mary. And uh, reading the notes on the wiki, as beloved as the film seems to be anyway, they indicate that they did not find an audience as such, uh, l- looking at its uh, ticket sales in Seoul being less than 250,000 in terms yeah. of uh, attendance. And other films such as The Controversial and Sexually Explicit Lies and the film Ditto did better in terms of ticket sales and attendance, apparently. Uh, Ditto actually seems to feature a similar premise to Il Mary, with characters across time being able to communicate. Uh, in that film's case, though, through an amateur radio, so maybe it's a sweeter version of the American thriller frequency. But uh, They're compared uh, more often than you can mention just because of, of the, you know, the radio broadcast then from my point of view completely different film i i, I know you at some point later on you're going to ask me a little bit about it and i'll save it till i'll save it till then but it, it it's kind of amazing frequencies it's a good film it's an exciting film but but it seems to come up as uh, like just like frequency then there's a joke in reno 911 the the improvised parody show of uh, cops where the, the the sheriff's department are asked to go into a burning building to pick uh, up this uh, uh, book that uh, the tenant has been uh, uh, writing. So they say, uh, you know, the fire is going on, the bla- blaze is going on, like, what is it about? And he details the plot and everybody says, it's frequency, right? <laughs> no, it's not quite. And they, they sort of debate whether it's worth saving the book or not going into the fire because it's a ripoff of frequency. <laughs> so, so it comes up. Fair, fair play, fair play. Yeah. But anyway, going back to that, the whole thing of... Uh, uh, cinema going audience as an attendance of Il Mary. Is that a fair assessment that it didn't make a splash with the audience uh, of um, 2000 if we start with that? Yeah, you know, it, it made just over 200,000. Everywhere says, you know, it made about, uh, you know, a quarter of a million. It may not sound bad, but you've got to remember this was 2000. You know, New Korean cinema had just exploded, you know, over the past year or two. The big hitters were really big hitters. If you look at this year as well, JSA, um, Joint Security Area, made two and a half million admissions compared to Ilmer only having 200,000. The File King had 800,000 admissions. And like you said, Ditto and Lies had over 300,000 each. And Lies is a really controversial little indie film. You know, the fact that they did so much better than Ilmer, Ilmari, uh, might make you think that it wasn't that well received. But while that's the case, there's another reason as far as I'm concerned. What you've got to remember is that at this time, you know, it was all about let's see every Korean film we can. And Ditto, which is, again, a time travel movie, was released just four months before El Mari or El Mare. So, you know, and it, it was received critically much, much better. Because it was the really what the first you know love across time thing that was going to become huge in Korean cinema, and essentially when Elmer appeared, most people just sort of went, "What another love across time thing already?" Really, they, they were they weren't able to sort of spin the promotion as opposed to make it fresh. Uh, so um, so many few uh, so, so few months after the, the first one, so to say, appeared. Exactly. Whereas you know, if you look at the years since every time there's been a love across time thing released they can push it as this is a classic trope this this goes right back to 2000 blah 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 and it draws people in so it's almost the opposite now you know and the, the film that immediately comes to mind is a film called will you be there which was i think 2000 and 
13, 14, maybe even 15. Uh, again, with my dog Siok in it, in a very unfighty role, which again drew people in. And he essentially finds a way to go back in time to try and save his wife from being killed. Um, and it goes through his trials and tribulations, but great little film. And it it drew crowds in because it was this love across time. Ilmer was too close to something that had already been at a time when people were looking for something new all the time. And 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 did that extend to critics as well that they they didn't feel like this was uh, fresh enough and worthy of of high of high grade. We'll talk about it a little bit more as we go along, but you know the love for this film has grown exponentially, gradually exponentially over the years since, and that's why you heard of it, probably heard of it before you heard of Ditto, even though Ditto is you know, a much more complex film. You know, it's got a lot of social critique in it. We'll talk a little bit about that that more a little bit later as well. But, you know, Elmer is now regarded as the classic in this genre, much more than Ditto is. So, you know, it took its time, but it got the accolades that I think it's kind of mostly worthy of. I mean, would you go as far as... uh you know, if you were to ask like a couple of uh, noted uh, Korean cinema critics or friends that you know are diehard fans of Korean cinema and know what uh, the ups and downs and developments have been during the last 20-22 years, would you think that they would single out the Ilmeri as, as a classic? Definitely. You know, I mean, you buy any book that deals with new Korean cinema as, as a whole of that time frame and you know, Ilmari, Ilmer will be in there and it'll be, you know, it, it, they all note that, oh, it wasn't as well received as it should have been. But, you know, it's become a loved classic since and they say that more about that film than they've said it about anything else ever. You know, and when when you read reviews in those books of things like Ditto, they constantly just say, well, it's the same as Frequency, which it isn't. So it's almost like they know what Ditto is, but they've kind of forgotten that it was it was much more complex than than a sci-fi movie with Dennis Quaid in it. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, sp- speaking of the, uh, Ditto, therefore, even if you deem it to be comparable in content to Il Mary or not, I mean, is it any good as a film that earned slightly more at the time? Yes. In my opinion, it really is. Essentially, Ditto, if you th- if any of you know what frequency is, it's a story of a, a man and his son who connect across a, you know, a ham radio line or whatever. Um, Ditto essentially takes a very similar point, but it takes two students who uh, are 21 years apart um, and connect across a ham radio. But the great thing the director does is he, he sets... One of the times is the present, obviously. He sets the other one as 1979, which is the year that there was huge turmoil in Korea and politics. It was the year that Park Chung-hee, President Park, was assassinated. And what you see between all the love and melodrama and everything else in Ditto is a real, real criticism of Korean society in the past and how what a struggle it's been to get to the way it is uh, in a much safer, more democratized, 
present. You know, there's a lot to Ditto, but ultimately you can also look at it as uh, a love melodrama. So it works on a couple of levels. I, I like it. I really do. But, you know, it's it's obviously not thought of as well as Elmer presently anyway. It's, it's easy to get a uh, little bit drowned out uh, amidst the volume of films coming out as well. Uh, not talking just this uh, setup or genre, but uh, obviously Coming Cinema has always been producing a healthy amount of films per year and still uh, do seemingly. So, you know, it's uh, it's over 20 years ago, so some movies uh, tend to drown out whether deserved or not. Well, exactly. You know, um, it, it does have to be said that the reaction to Ilmer subsequently you know is a lot to do with the international setup because you know it was the fourth korean film that was purchased for the remake rights previously the films called high dharma obviously my sassy girl they they had also got the thing for remakes but ilmer was the fourth film so that immediately kept it putting it back into people's minds that Regardless of whether they liked the remake or not, it was based on this classic Korean film. It was based on this classic Korean film over and over again. So, Yeah, that's a way to extend its uh, life, uh, certainly. And uh, indeed, it led to a remake, which we'll uh, detail in a bit. But le- we've done a big biography on the film's leading lady, Jun Ji-hyun, on our episode of um, The Uninvited. So we won't go over that again, but I wanted to do a couple of things despite... Uh, uh, so, Il Mary was released a full year before what I understood to be her breakout film role, which was uh, My Sassy Girl. So, I'm not quite sure, so that's why I'm going to ask. Uh, was she a box office draw at all in 2000? Uh, had she had success on TV, so there was like a built-in audience of note that would bring her cinematic stardom in 2000? Or how, how bright was her star shining before My Sassy Girl? The thing about Jung Hoon is that you see her once and her stars shining bright, you know, her first movie role, she was already, you know, obviously going to be a star because there's just something about her and she's so photogenic, everything else. Um, but in terms of before Ilmer, she'd only done one film, a, a small movie called White Valentine, which was essentially, again, a, a melodrama about her searching for, you know, love and trying to cope with tragedy at the same time. This was only her second film. In terms of TV, she'd also only done two TV shows before Ilmer, and they weren't the biggest roles in the world, let's put it that way. So Ilmer sort of wasn't her breakthrough, My Sassy Girl was, but it was really only her second big, big role in terms of the amount of time she's on screen whatever people thought of her in 2000 and uh, it, it was really nothing compared to like the breakout that she would have the year after so i mean uh ilmary i think is comparably nothing in terms of impact compared to what my sassy girl was which i don't quite agree with knowing that i like ilmary better than my sassy girl but that's another discussion. We did the episode on the on the uninvited in 2018 so we could only talk of her career up Till that point. So let's catch up a little on four years of Jun Ji Hyun, essentially. It seems she remains selective about the work she takes on. She's a mother of two by this point. And I think the last points in the biography we did in that episode was notes on her return to TV in the 2016 fantasy romance drama The Legend of the Blue Sea. And 
her popularity was still intact. Uh, she uh, was a major draw. The series was a success. Somewhat recently, as a few years old now, Netflix viewers would have caught her at the very end of season two of the period zombie series Kingdom. And she subsequently received her own prequel episode, which was feature length though, uh, called Kingdom Ashen of the North. Um, and uh, whether Kingdom Season 3 goes ahead and Jun Ji Hyun's participation is a lock remains to be seen. I think it's uh, in limbo. Possibly it's been. Uh, Decline for renewal, which would be a shame. I think uh, I've, I've seen the first two series of Kingdom, and I think they have it in them to uh, make a third one. It kind of ends on an open-ended note, a big old close-up of her at the end. Uh, they sort of go back to the source of the outbreak, which the prequel film explains. But I think if the Netflix uh, gods are playing fair, then I think Kingdom deserves a couple of episodes um, additionally. So... Um, uh, but it's a very good series. I know you watched a little bit of it, but I don't think you completed Kingdom, right? No, I mean, I did the first season and then I stopped having Netflix and I've only recently got Netflix back again. And I've sort of been catching up on loads of other stuff, but I must go and check out season two and, you know, Ashen of the North and whatever else as soon as I can, I, I can if I can. Another Kingdom connection remains, though, as its screenwriter, Kim Eun-hee, was behind a TV series, Jiri-san Erling, in, uh, which aired in 12 parts in 2021. It's about um, uh, park rangers of the Jiri-san National Park, uh, res- uh, rescuing survivors of incidents and lost uh, trekkers and what have you, which uh, she starred in. It, it retained a steady grip on viewers in Korea and can be actually, at the time of recording, be streamed worldwide on the Chinese streaming platform uh, IQIY. I, I can't pronounce that, uh, but uh, 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 it's an uh, English subtitle to boot, so you can actually watch that uh, TV series. Um, so I, I guess my question is, is her workload, you think, normal for an actress of her status, or do you think she is being selective because she can and that won't affect her brand or anything by working every other year? She she has specifically said in interviews that she's always been selective and she'll only take roles that... You know, she she's either drawn by the story or drawn by who she's working with or working for. And she, she specifically said that having two kids made no difference. She was still going to be as selective as she has been. You know, when you look at the efforts she made over the years in, in bigger films in Korea, as well as the sort of English language stuff that she's been desperate to get involved in, you can sort of see where she's coming from, where she's looking for from a career point of view. And I mean, sadly, you know, things like Blood, The Last Vampire did nothing. They weren't handled correctly, but she's wonderful in that sort of thing. And she also did, it was a co-production between the States and China. The name of it actually almost escapes my my mind. Snowflower, that's it, which I haven't seen, you know, where it end, where it ended up, I don't know, but it was specifically got to go ahead for release in the States by Rupert Murdoch just coming up and saying, we're going to release this. So it was well thought of beforehand. It didn't hit very well. But again, she was being selective because she wanted to work in English cinema as well as Korean. So you compare it to someone like Sonia Jin, who's in something every couple of weeks. She'll just take any role she has going, whether it's big, independent, you know, small, etc., etc. You know, whether it's great or 
audience friendly, whatever. She'll just grab whatever she can because she's she's a workaholic. Jun isn't. She just she takes her time and she does projects that she feels are good projects. And I think that's something to be quite lauded, really. I don't know if you had any interest in uh, that uh, Jirisan uh, series or knew that it was available with English subtitles. But I guess my question is, the, the, the state of Korean TV and an actress like her appearing uh, in it, whether it's a streaming thing or, or broadcast television, it isn't a second-rate thing or beneath her, right? Uh, TV is pretty pretty prestigious at this point. Yeah, totally, totally. You know, you, you, you she's, she's so well thought of that her name attached to anything, whether it be Korean or international, will will draw people in. You know, she she is she is a star. She 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 really is. She always has been, and quite rightly so. Back to Ilmeria. Neither the Grand Bell Awards or Blue Dragon Awards uh, seem to have given uh, it any nominations, uh, and it seems like it presumably would have been up uh, for the 2001 Grand Bell Awards uh, as it was released in September of 2000. Uh, but uh, the film and the players that did emerge as winners uh, during uh, the Grand Bell Awards uh, were the likes of JSA, Best Film, Best Actor, uh, Song Kang-ho in that case, Ko Soo-young for her performance in Haru, which I know nothing of, and I believe the firefighter film Libera Me won a couple of distinguished technical awards. Uh, the Blue Dragon Awards of 2000, I'm not sure it would have been eligible for, but it's uh, 2000 roster of winners, including J- included JSA for Best Film, Lee Byung-hun for Best Actor for JSA, and actress Lee Mi-hyun winning Best Actress for Pisces. So uh, just because I don't know of uh, Haru and Pisces, uh, uh, doesn't mean that they're forgotten, so uh, feel free to give a little breakdown if you like. And, uh, and are they, in fact, forgotten to time? Uh, and uh, were, they, uh, were they popular then? Are they still popular now? I guess it was my question. A very, very odd thing, I mean, you know, with, for a film that has Amy Young in it, Pisces, um, she was a, a darling, and she got, you know, she got the Best Actress Award. She's it's a great actress, but problem with Pisces was her co-star who, whose career didn't really carry on very much. There was no chemistry whatsoever. It's way too long. It's overly cliched melodrama. It's essentially about a young woman who falls in love with a, an out-of-work musician. And while it was seen as, as, as well-made and well-acted on her part, it just didn't stay in the the zeitgeist it didn't stay in the the public's mind for any length of time by comparison haru which translates to a day um again like ilmari over the years has become an absolute cult classic it's the story of a couple who are desperate to have a child you know struggling as they are in their daily lives and they finally find out that the girl's pregnant and they're so looking forward to it and i won't give too much away but they find out that their happiness is only going to last for a day, hence it being called a day. You know, it got best director, it got best actress for Koso Young, who's wonderful in it. Um, Han Ji Seung, the director, did a phenomenal job, and it's rightly still thought of with great love today. Whereas you ask anybody other than a Korean film critic, what's Pisces about? They'll be like, what's Pisces? No idea. 
you know, it, it happens, but hopefully they're available to an enough extent where people can uh, rediscover, at the very least, uh, things that were mentioned at the big awards. You you would think that that, that will count for something, and therefore, uh, hopefully, they can be uh, uh, found uh, online and um, all of that. So, uh, because uh, a movie like JSA obviously is get, get, gets re-released uh, over and over again. Yeah, well, certainly Haru's still available. I know it's still available commercially available all these years later it shows how beloved it is where you get hold of pisces your guess is as good as mine to be honest with you uh, but from my point of view it's not really worth the effort anyway so let's bring matters back to the director of il mario we haven't even mentioned the person uh, lee hyun sung a director that was active and uh, lauded even before this korean cinema new wave hit. Um, he studied visual communication design in the Department of Fine Arts at the Hong Gik University. Then focus was on filmmaking by attending the Korean Academy of Film Arts. Uh, he got a foot in the door in 1986 by serving as an assistant director for people like Park Chul-soo and Park kwang Su. And one of the films he was an AD on, which we have seen and covered, was Chilsu and Mansu from the latter director, Park Kwan Su. So, in short, because we have obviously gone, gone over it before, are though, uh, these two um, directors, uh, are they key directors in their areas, in their eras? Uh, um, and even going into the new wave, were they active at all uh, as these, uh, this new wave uh, emerged and new talent emerged? Yeah, very much so. They're both really, really, really important directors, um, especially Park Kwang Soo. He made his first film in 1988, um, which was, funnily enough, Chil Soo and Mansu. Um, and his, late, his last film was a film called Uprising in 99. But between 88 and 99, every one of his finger, fingers, every one of his films is seminal. It's really important. He did a film called A Sp Single Spark, which is a historical film about the labour movement um, and true story of a young man who actually set himself on fire to protest outdated labour laws. Um, it's, a, it's a gripping film. It's a dark film. It's a difficult film. And it's considered one of the greatest historical dramas of all time. He also did To the Starry Island, which is phenomenal. Black Republic, which again is very, very political, very, very important. The Berlin Report, which again talks about politics on top of everything else. Everything he's done says something socially, socially, critically, really desperately important director. Park Chul Su, on the other hand, is he started working in Around the same time, he was still making films up until 2013, although sporadically. But if you look at some of the classics he's done, he did a film called Green Chair, which is an older lady falling in love with a younger man, which was very taboo at the time. If any of you are interested in that, it's it's phenomenal. It's really important. It's really dark. Um, you can, there's a review on of it on Hangul Celluloid, little plug. If you want to go and have a read without seeing it, um, it doesn't give too much away, but really important. And in 2013, he did a film called BED, which was about extramarital relationships and whatever else. It's known for being one of the first major Korean big movies to feature total full frontal nudity. Uh, so it's quite controversial, but again, really really amazing 
they're both phenomenal. They're they're they deserve to be in the Hall of Fame and O'Mary's director getting to work with them in the early early in his career, um, he must have thought he was on his way to to great heights, and quite rightly so. And he indeed uh, went on from assistant director to making his directorial debut in 1992 with the film The Blue in You. Um, Lee Hyun-sung had made a short film earlier though in 1987, but uh, The Blue in You was his uh, feature film debut. Uh, The lush, sensual images and colors were singled out in what is considered... Uh, won the first Korean feminist film of its era. Um, it ended up being an award winner uh, at the awards ceremonies in 1993. The fourth Chunsa Film Art Awards and the 14th Blue Dragon Film Awards both gave the Best New Director Award to Lee. So what a start. Uh, the Blue and New Stars uh, Nowhere to Hide, uh, Ansun Ki. He's also in Chills and Mansu. Uh, but um, in, in short, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the film? And has it remained in circulation via, via the Korean film archive, either on disc or streaming? The Blue and You, up until quite recently, was actually on the Korean film archive free to stream. It was removed at, at a point from when I'd looked at it once and gone to look to see if it was there again. It was removed. Um, I'm not sure if it's back on there yet, but usually what the Korean film archive does is when they remove something they'll then they'll remove it for some reason and then replace it at a later stage so hopefully it's still there and it's certainly worth a look not just because of answer key but because as you say it is you know a deeply feminist film it's it's a very simple story at the same time it's about a couple who start working together and they you know standard story they don't like each other they gradually fall in love and the more the closer they get as people the harder it is for them to work together and the whole pull of you know one part of the relationship getting better and the one that the part of it that was going good getting worse it's tactile um it's it's a really really nice little film very as i say very simple but very memorable at the same time is it at all uh, public, easy, obtainable knowledge if uh, it was a, uh, an audience uh, favourite and attended film at all, or was it just an, uh, an awards darling? No, it, it, it followed, you know, you, you, with so many, you know, best actress, technical awards, best new director, it drew people in, and it did surprisingly well for such, you know, such a new director. And, and quite rightly so, but a lot of that was, again, because of Antsuki, um, who could... You know, he could, he, you could film him sitting in front of a wall, you know, silent, not moving for two hours and audiences would go and see it because it's him. It did much better than you would expect for such a small little film, um, but it deserves everything it got. And uh, therefore, the train, the directing train moved on, uh, rolled on. His second movie, Sunset Into the Neon Lights, was reportedly not very well received. Oh, uh, uh, here it was reportedly drawn upon uh, autobiographical details about uh, director Lee Hyun Sung going uh, to college in the 80s. Uh, themes of capitalism versus art in the advertising world and sexism were sort of baked in there. Between 1995, he seemingly was a crew member on a variety of films and short films and even appeared as an actor in 1999 City of the Rising Sun. You know, if he had broken through critically with his debut film, uh, it was really... Ilmeri that elevated matters to a degree and perhaps the, the film that is the reason that film fans know the name of Lee Hyun Sung. Again, his first film might have been more well received, but if a, a film out of his filmography is uh, 
is singled out, it kind of remains in Mary for for many reasons. Uh, there were critical notes, uh, not critical, but the critics' notes on his uh, direction uh, in uh, and skillful direction in making emotions come to life in a subtle, moody way, complemented by rich cinematography, and that's certainly true. Uh, as we mentioned, on release in uh, 2000, and didn't make uh, waves as such, but has stuck in the cinema consciousness to the point where an American remake was produced of uh, Il Mary, but uh, we'll uh, detail that a bit later. But then Lee Hyun Sung, despite this... Uh, he didn't make waves, so perhaps uh, there was a reason that there was a break for 11 years. Uh, perhaps uh, Lee had projects getting uh, problems, getting projects uh, greenlit uh, without a box office hit, uh, uh, backing him up. Uh, but he reportedly did say publicly after Il Mary that he was at a crossroads and he saw his Korean film industry that he had witnessed for a couple of uh, decades now as something you should work at and not just work in. Uh, you, you'd want to improve standards. You want to nurture talent. Uh, so he was clearly motivated by that. So Lee Hyun Sung took on the role of producer on several short films by aspiring directors and even features such as 2005's The Unforgiven. Uh, Paul uh, will um, go into detail, but uh, that film was the graduation thesis film from its director Yoon Jong Bin and was awarded greatly on the award circuit as critics and audiences took to heart the story of uh, mandatory military service, which uh, the, the young director, uh, he kind of ruffled feathers, though, because because the Defense Department objected to what uh, they had seen at the script stage versus what ended up in the film. So it, it, it's an interesting little, it's another director, but it's still an interesting topic to elaborate a little bit on. So f- feel free to fill in the, con- uh, the controversy surrounding the film. Uh, but was The Unforgiven ultimately a small award starling that never got a big audience? Or, um... Its reputation um, served it quite well. I will talk a little bit about that in a second. But essentially The Unforgiven is a story about two guys who are mandatorily forced into the armed services as everybody as every man is in korea the the film is a cutting i mean cutting critique of the way males are treated the way males in korea are expected to behave how they're expected to accept life of the military and essentially you've got one character that finds his way and finds he fits with military life really well and his supposed friend just doesn't he can't handle it at all and as such he gets labeled as a troublemaker and he's subsequently uh, subject to mental uh, emotional and physical abuse and it's a it's a difficult difficult film to watch our dear director you know his first film uh, young jung bin has said since and he hasn't talked very much about it, but he has said since that he deliberately left the screenplay, making it look like it was a story of just two friends in the military. And that was the version he let the Defense Department see because he wanted to use real living quarters, real military living conditions. They, of course, agreed. And when they saw the final film, it, it was just such a a criticism of everything they did and everything they stood for. They went ballistic and they filed litigation against him. He admitted he had deliberately deceived them. And uh, the last that was really heard was that he said he had accepted their position and was fully willing to take whatever punishment they deemed fit. 
but what punishment they deemed fit was never really made public knowledge. I think they wanted to sort of keep it to themselves and bury the whole thing under the carpet. You know, you know that takes some balls, but 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 I suppose you 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 should assume that he had support of uh, his uh, producer, unless Lee Hyun Hyun Sung um, came in at very late or maybe depart. I, I don't know, but uh, you, you know you would think such a young person would have uh, support for for his vision. And you know, I can't say that Lee Hyun Sung had prior knowledge. You can't say that, you know. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised, and certainly he backed him up and the importance of the film from everybody's point of view was part of why he signed up to be a producer anyway and i you know you know for a fact he as a producer was very happy with the outcome even if the defense department wasn't on top of that you know it was well received as an important film by critics and its popularity at at festivals and stuff um you know it, it was a smash hit at the Busan International Film Festival um, on its year of release in 2005. And that allowed it to get a much wider release than a debut film normally would have. It it played in very reputable art house films throughout Seoul. Um, and it was never the biggest success, but it was never badly thought of either. So, you know, it's an important film. And good on Lee Hyo Sun for for signing up to be a producer and helping to get that thing out there because it needed to be out there. I, I didn't put this in my notes, but uh, considering the consequences, the the the, uh, the hidden consequences, did, did this director ever work again? He, he's done a few shorts. Uh, he tried to do another feature that I haven't really, you know, I, I, I can't even remember the name of it, to be honest, but quietly, he's more behind the scenes than he is directing now. And I don't think that's anything to do with the, the Defence Department or anything. I think it's just, you know, it's one of those ones that goes and you think they're going to be a big thing and then they, they just sort of stagnate, I guess. And you never know, you know, another two years he might pop up again with another controversial film. You know, that's the way these things go around, so... Yeah, you, we we always have spoken about the uh, Ilmaris director taking uh, s- stepping away from directing and uh, finding another path that suits him, which is uh, still akin to making rather than uh, being in limbo. Yeah. So uh, it might not be a bad thing. So so speaking more of uh, director Lee Hyun Sung, he also engaged in cinema related endeavors such as being the first commissioner of the Gyeonggi Performing Arts and Film Commission. He was the vice uh, chairman of the Korean Film Council at one point, executive director of the Misensen Short Film Festival, film professor at the Chungang University and founder of the Director's Cut Awards among other things. But but eventually there was a feature-length comeback 11 years after Il Mary, and that was 2011's Hindsight starring Song Kang-ho. F- feel free to give a little synopsis, as you always do, in your views, but I did read that it didn't fare well with uh, critics or audiences. Yeah, Hindsight was a, a major, major misstep right from the get-go. Um, it's the story of a female hit woman played by Shin Chi Hyun, who was, you know, a, a fairly well-known name, more in television than film. But they put her alongside Song Kang-ho, who's, you know, everybody that's in a Korean film essentially knows who he is. And everybody thought it was going, because of that, it was going to be star power heaven. Um, it's the story of, I say, a, a female hit woman who's given a target to hit to kill uh, an underworld boss. 
uh, and as she goes to do her job, she gradually finds herself falling in love with him. And it's that same sort of story that we've seen again and again, good girl, bad guy, fall in love when they shouldn't, that we've seen for so many generations in Korean cinema that it just, it didn't have the traction that a different storyline would have. If you look at what, how it did in the box office, it, it had 800,000 admissions, which on an average year you would actually say was quite good. But you've got to remember that in 2011, we've got the, the top film was silenced about a true story about a guy who exposes injustices and abuse of deaf school children. It had 10 million admissions. Wow. You know, the second biggest film was. Arrow, which was a huge action, historical, you know, period thing, seven million admissions. And even a little film like the, the animation Leafy A Hen Into the Wild, which is about uh, a, a hen who decides that she's going to escape and have a wonderful life. It even had two million admissions. So compared to that, 800,000, not really hitting as it should. And, and, and that's all she wrote for now anyway for director lee uh, lee um but uh you know the, hopefully is working in a way that makes sense for lee personally whether on film judging films teaching film or whatever it seems like uh, he's able to keep himself busy and uh and maybe there will be 11 years until well, well it's been 11 years now in 2022 but may, maybe it will be quite a gap and we'll see what pops up but um we have also mentioned before we now get to the movie movie review that the uh, Ilmer had resonated uh, in the wake of its performance, uh, and so much so that Hollywood, at one point, whether a year or two after release, uh, bought remake rights uh, for it. Uh, I did for remake potentially. You know, these things take a few years to get made if they get made. I mean, we've heard rumblings for many years. Uh, maybe they've stopped now of uh, a remake of Castaway on the Moon, which yeah. might. Might happen, might not happen. These things uh, stay, they, they linger, they fester, <laughs> and they happen or they don't. Uh, but anyway, uh, Il Mary was remade as The Lake House in 2006. Uh, it starred Old Speed acting pals Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. And on a budget of 40 million, it earned nearly 150 million US dollars worldwide. Its uh, Rotten Tomatoes rating hovers around 35%, suggesting it wasn't very well received as such. Uh, U.S. critic uh, Roger Ebert gave it a good review, uh, stating that he wasn't bothered by logical inconsistencies and thought it was a time travel story that worked on emotional and not temporal logic. The New York Times called it wondrously illogical but not without its charms, elegant without being showy, and that the stars showed they still have chemistry over a decade later. Other critics, such as uh, OC Register's David Germain, said it was a tearjerker that elicits more chuckles than tears. We'll be talking about it in a bonus episode, so we'll uh, we'll uh, stop at this point. But uh, of note is, or uh, like like the ripples of Ilmeri, it actually extends to more places than America in terms of remaking uh, potential. Uh, and apparently, the 2015 Indian Canada language film uh, Minchagi Ni Barulu based its plot on Ilmeri, but uh, it's not really my, um, I, you know, I don't follow the variations of cinema coming out of India. So I, I didn't watch it or anything and I didn't know of it. But but yeah, there's still some eyes and ears on that storyline is my is my point. 
even in 2015. So let's get over to the review then, my first time viewing, your reviewing. Uh, I like the feeling of... Uh, of uh, Ilmeri uh, being glossy looking. Uh, it looks like a mainstream romantic drama, but it doesn't hold your hand. It doesn't seem like a safe template, actually. At least not to me. I haven't seen all of these time travel, CB radio uh, style films out of Korea. But, but to me, it didn't seem like it's using safe tools. It doesn't seem like it's manipulative either. Again, it may have been similar to one or two films to a Korean audience at the time, but the point is, to me, it felt fresh. It's not the same old, same old, and all the better for it. Uh, it. It being reserved was the thing I liked about it, to be honest. Not a tear-jerker melodrama cranked to 11 or anything. Uh, the moments that we have are earned. Otherwise, it feels very reserved, and I think uh, that's the better choice for it. I have a, a, a huge soft spot for Ilmer or Ilmeri. I, I always did have since the first time I saw it. I think it's a very innocent film, and I think its strength lies in that innocence and almost naivety. Um, and I don't mean that as a criticism. You know, it really is. It's a very sweet film. It takes its time. It doesn't feel rushed but again i don't feel it drags there are a lot of areas where because they're talking across time via letters there's a lot of narration going on but even that doesn't drag because they set it off with some beautiful picturesque almost montages as the two characters almost interact even though they can't because they're two years apart it's almost like they're interacting in their own little worlds um I think it's a deeply, deeply sweet film, and I think both actors have a great chemistry. Uh, of the two, obviously, I'm going to say Jun Ji-hun is perfection. When you watched it and you sent me a quick message, you, you summed it up. You just said, she's luminous in every scene, and that's that's the image you get from looking at her when when you see her in her kitchen making noodles you could almost imagine the a, a still picture you know on a, a an art exhibition wall she's that photogenic yet it isn't this uh, fashion commercial or anything yes there are picturesque images that you just still frame in your mind forever like her writing and posting her christmas card at the beginning of the film uh, and the movie is like boasting a little bit uh, in a good way with its distinct construction of the of the lake house uh, with the long bridge going over to, to that designer house uh, from the mainland to to the lake uh, and then you have the what looks like an older style mailbox that might not have existed ever in Korea but it makes for a good visual it is beautiful it's, a, it's one of my favorite mailboxes in any film when we come to look at the remake i'll discuss this a little bit further it's a it's a it's a it's a regular folks mailbox in the in the lake house let's just say that but all of that is a very beautiful very static looking and uh you're able to capture the sort of sweetness and the beauty of the film but he isn't this uh purely sort of uh, visual auteur only interested in that but it's a nice little dreamy sweet setup that then obviously then focus on focuses on proper narrative uh, and there's a funny bit in the radio studio because she is uh, an actress uh, but she works in uh, in a radio studio dubbing uh, 
animation or children's programming and she does that in a group a group of like 10 people who are just shouting and climbing over each other and bending over and being very very ex- extrovert as you should be as you're doing uh, voiceover for for children which is uh, a very funny scene to see the actors sort or of climb on each other and bend and uh, what have you so it's uh it's a very it's a very funny thing that's a profession that doesn't carry over to the lake house but i think uh, they make a point of uh, not uh, having that uh, uh, carry over but uh, but yeah even as so being so young and uh, she obviously has experience uh, but she 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 has a lo- lovely presence and she's very, a very dedicated film actress and not just a pretty face obviously she's uh, in it to win it uh, playing a character part as well so but a potential problem could have been if these beats about um, sending letters between years is not clear then you're screwed you don't want to resort to heavy exposition of what's going on. And I think Director Lee strikes a balance between us understanding but not overstating exactly what's going on through like internal voiceover. Like, oh my god, a letter from two years ago. Oh no, a letter from two years in the future. It's not overdone and maybe that speaks of experience. That you shouldn't uh, overdo this and you trust your audiences to get the, the combination of little small musings by the characters of what is going on here and i like that that it's uh that's what i mean by it. it's not holding your hand but it's not uh convoluted to me necessarily you know indeed i i i wholeheartedly agree with that i think he hits the balance really well when i rewatched it i haven't watched it in years until i was rewatching it for this i was actually quite taken by how naturally you come to accept that they are speaking across time which is not an easy thing to to you know <laughs> to believe if you think Th- about there's it. not um, even a text thing ever on the screen 1997 1999 no there, there, there's no like a, we, we don't need that help no exactly you know and the one thing that came to mind for me was we've talked about it recently and i do read it a film called the call with partially in it and I loved it, and it's a—it's not love across time, but it's—it's it's two characters that are connected. It's murder across time. That's what it murder is. Murder across time, connected in the same place across two different time periods, and I—I I do love it. But on watching it for the first, second, even third time, I constantly thought the one thing is that they almost believe it too readily. They're almost so quick to just go, "Oh, right, so we're." You know, 20 years apart, right, great, okay, let's, what's the future like? And that's not the case with Ilmari. I think he handles it very naturally and very believably. Like, like, like there's no fancy signaling of changing timelines, no music cues, sound cues, no, no distinct like visual changes. Because it's only two years, or why should you like have a different color palette or anything like well, that? Indeed, uh, indeed. It's just static and straight, and it's not hard for us to pick up on the clues and the beats, and uh, and it never gets overwhelming either. I mean, he, his way of cranking is is by stacking a couple of um, letters on top of each other where they where they receive and read and send and uh, receive and read and so forth. But it's. Uh, it's during the section where the characters are kind of annoyed by the supposed pranking that's going on here. So that's his way of cranking it. But I don't think you can think of that sequence being overwhelming, too comedic or anything like that. It keeps its uh, gears uh, at a nice little 
uh, it, it chugs along at a nice pace uh, rather than uh, making this uh, too complicated or anything. Uh, it's a short film too, so this didn't come from a time where everything needed to be two hours or anything, so it's obviously swift. Um, it's just nice to follow that flow when they do realize that this is happening and how they are uh, kind of enri- enriching each other's lives. Uh, he loves to cook, so therefore they have a couple of lovely cooking sequences in solitude, which is just lovely to see. He's very enthusiastic about that, uh, Lee Jung-jae's uh, character, and um, talks about, like, throw the pasta to a wall, and uh, if it uh, sticks, then you'll know it's ready. So it's, 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 it's very cute to follow and uh, very pleasant and uh, sweet and uh, it's easy to be uh, to go with that flow I think if you know what I mean I also really love the way he does his characterizations as well especially Judge Hood's character um, you take when she has just moved into a new apartment and she's just on her way out to work and she sees a, a you know a middle-aged woman walking past and she goes uh, you know and you'll say oh you know i've just moved in and the woman completely ignores her she walks down the hallway a little bit stops at the stairs and then repeats to herself several times nice to meet you nice to meet you nice to meet you like she's trying to get it right and it's just the characters are just clearly such lovely innocent people and i think that that warms certainly warmed me to both of them and i think that's another plus point in its favor they're um, characters um experiencing or accepting solitude to a degree though i think there's little hints that she's a little bit too nice for her own good when her friends ask her to mind the bookstore uh, multiple times i think uh, but uh, the transition into the joy in the exchange is lovely without it signaling that totes in love now super in love now of the three letters they don't solely focus on that love is in the air it's this um, it's this magic thing that is lovely and also by the way there's no need to explain the magic either uh, that is going on just be transformed instead and just uh, don't uh, like employ any special effects about it either um, which is a fault of the remake they, they have to show the magic and I don't think uh, that's the right choice I think here it's the, the, we don't see any like twirling like uh, magic within the mailbox type of shots here no that's that's a magic object but it's a static object and we only see it from external view so director Lee doesn't feel the need to uh, push that thought and he shouldn't really because um it's it's believable to have it straight and uh, it doesn't need to be uh, emphasized with uh, effects or visual cues necessarily. Maybe there are some visual cues here and there, a little ding, but I didn't feel like uh, he was overemphasizing that magic is happening now. As lovely as it is, there are dark story patterns here. There's a nicely introduced non-verbal mystery of an old man arriving at the mailbox, appearing emotionally emotionally distraught. We certainly find out that that's the father of one of the characters, so he isn't afraid to transfer into that, but never goes overboard with the melodrama or anything. He keeps it rather sparse, but still we form the full picture, which I guess is the highest compliment, you know. So did you think that transition worked for you into the emotional beats and the darkness of the characters a little bit? Uh... Very, very much so. You know, it, with a film like this, especially, uh, you know, in the year 2000, considering, you know, aside from, you know, Hammer 
fight scenes in films, you know, drama and melodrama was the big force. It had been for years on television and it had been all there was in cinema for for decades. Carrying on that to, to stay away from the, the very cliched melodrama side, but still make it an involving melodrama. That, that's a difficult call. I, I think he manages it wonderfully. You know, and the little moments for me where nothing's said, but you see what's what's happening just from these tiny little cues. There's a scene where, I'm not going to give any spoilers away, but there's a scene where she's on a beach and she's got a pair of little wool mittens that are tied together um, and they're sitting on the beach and she's just found out that they're not going to have anything or they think they're not going to have any more to do with them, with each other in the future. And all you see is her sitting there, you know, silently and the waves come in and just wash the mittens out. And that's sort of the mittens, you know, that, that almost linked the two of them because they were from him. But you see them almost just being washed away and it's almost just, look, their relationship seems to be washing away as well. It's tiny little picturesque cues like that without the need for exposition, without the need for any more narration when there's quite enough as it is. Those are all strengths from my point of view and all add a huge warmth to everything. And even his uh, story with his family which uh, is he doesn't turn it pitch black in a cliched way we we certainly found out that there's illness in his family and he carries uh, resentment and anger and if i remember correctly they really cut in quickly to a, a tragic event of screen and quickly to a scene where we see uh, Lee Jung Jae's uh, character getting drunk it it it, it isn't preceded by a whole lot of things uh, but we get it that um, this is uh, how he deals with uh, with uh, with loss and things he ha- things he hasn't dealt with for whatever reason uh, before it's easier to uh, dive into alcohol uh, but uh, I, I oh I continue to admire the little uh, glimpses of um, of life you know uh, but at the same time we're getting the full context quite uh, quite easily and ultimately uh, between them maybe when you're in the middle of the film you don't know maybe ultimately the reason for this magic happening isn't to connect romantically but to mend broken pieces in their respective lives together you it's not clear cut that uh, we need to come together and kiss and meet in two years and uh, I do like that, and and then they add also some some little hints that uh, they may be playing with the timelines too much. That you're not supposed to do that. You know, you change history, but you may might change another thing if you do so. So there's little hints of that, or little, little hints of danger, I suppose. And they, but but it's really complex though because yes, they they want to meet, but if they meet would it mean that he has stalked her because he's he's uh, he's two years ahead and he can look her up so maybe she's not receptive her 1998 version isn't receptive so he has to be reserved as well how he approaches these things because they do they both do exist it's not like she's a child two years uh, earlier or anything so uh it's interesting that they uh they don't they push uh 
automatically that this needs to be a romance and it's super easy just because they're connected over time. Um, there's challenges along the way that I think uh, that I think he handles uh, quite well. And I'm gonna say something very controversial in a fair world. And yes, my sassy girl is the more noticeable extroverted performance. I think this is more a more deserved cinematic breakthrough for her, Jun Ji Hyun. Um, I agree. I agree. I can't, the reason I didn't like my sassy girl, I think back then watching the longer director's cut that felt like it was like 140 minutes, I, I didn't feel that the mixture of quirky and drama clicked, and I didn't feel charmed by that uh, tone back then. Uh, but I understand that she's uh, she's cool. And she she drinks and the spaghetti on the head and uh, all of that stuff and there's but but the stuff going on uh, going on under there I understand but I I like this more I, I like this side of her more to be honest yeah and you know as you watch more and more of her films throughout her career you, you do see more and more of these sort of you know natural gentle little windows into whatever character she's playing what you know and i i think that's one of her personal strengths she's really good at it i mean i mean i'm sure you're still a fan of my sassy girl but i have a feeling you see at least weaknesses in the longer version that it runs too long oh yeah very very much so i i am a fan but i'm i'm a fan because of its cult status almost as sure. much as anything else there are many of her films that that I would jump to rewatch far more quickly than my sassy girl because you've seen it, you you know what it is. It's it's quirky, it's funny, whether you like it or not, whatever. But once you've seen it, or at least seen it a couple of times, you, you've seen it. You know there's not going to be a surprise. The way Korean cinema took that type of character that starts out really aggressive and really fighty, if you like. And really pushed it so you see character after character after character that are the same, you know, really feisty but with a heart of gold. You've sort of seen it. You've seen it and done it with things like Elmer. It's far more natural. It's far gentler and it's far more warming. Even she got typecast in one movie or two as the My Sassy Girl type of character. It wasn't like movies like Windstruck, kind of wild on, it had that wild mixture when it came to her characterization as well totally it did yes very much so you know and it then went on into other actresses but you know she was heralded as that character for for a long time so you know it's good that we get to see her in other things but i agree with you this should have been considered her breakout uh, it's just that my sassy girl was so much more successful it was seen as the as the vehicle that that got her to audiences and some, I guess, final specific notes, a couple of scenes that I liked. Uh, there's some quite joyous scenes as they have, uh, they're, they're sort of instructing each other how to have fun at the amusement park. Like, uh, I think she is like, she's written like what, what he should do uh, in order to have uh, fun and to be uh, silly and alive. I think, uh, what is it? Does it do a shot before going out to one of the... Uh, uh, no, no, he drinks a beer before going on to one of the rides. Yeah, he, he, he drinks a can and then he has to run as fast as he can to the ride so that it's all, you know, shaken up inside him and then he gets on the ride and, you know, I assume head effects take, take place somewhere inside him. And, and, and he selects those moments well and these are also moments where he fairly subtly 
gets the two into the same frame as a visual representation of what is going on that she, she's not there but she's walking beside him and reading the instructions out to him and but but he doesn't push that uh, issue that much in order to forcefully get the two actors in the same frame they don't have many scenes and they shouldn't have many scenes together it's not the purpose of uh, this film to have them physically there on set all their thing time or anything um, so I, I I do like that. Uh, it kind of connects to what I didn't like about the remake that um, they they forced this issue of uh, putting putting the stars uh, physically in the same scene together. But uh, the movie possibly isn't for those who keeps track of time travel timelines and logic way too closely. I don't. I can't. But I also recommend that you shouldn't because yeah. if you start fi- it's 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 actually not the fault. You you're never one hundred percent. When it comes to depicting time travel, because guess what? It doesn't exist! <laughs> you should be able to relax and make up your own rules. And if there are inconsistencies here that are up for criticism, y- yes, bring them up if it's fair. But don't l- let yourself be transformed. There's no such thing as a magic mailbox where you can send letters to two years before and two years into the future. So uh, that's easy to let go of, in my opinion. Indeed, and in terms of a film this gentle, you know, it's deserving of a little bit of leeway. You've already mentioned the remake that got, you know, critics saying that the plot was ludicrous and inconsistent and implausible, and it's because it doesn't handle it with the gentle nature that that these young son did. It, it's just handled really nicely, and it deserves. A little bit of a break just go with it because if you don't think about the inconsistencies in il mary you may notice one or two but you won't notice them all not unless you're sitting looking for them uh whereas in the lake house you will notice them noticeably notice them in an annoying manner but we'll talk about that in the in the bonus episode anyway i guess i, I won't mention anything about the ending other than um, i i like that he had a couple of uh, beats to it it looked like it was heading down a more uh, uh, tropey, melodramatic, uh, t- 1A type of template ending. But there are more beats to the ending that I appreciated. And uh, it wasn't a cop-out necessarily to end it the way it did. It wasn't the easy choice necessarily. Um, but uh, it, it, was, uh, it, it was interesting to the point where I felt like uh, it, it, it's up for... It's, it's, it's deserving of a rewatch to untangle uh, the very final ending beats a little bit more not that i want to look for illogical uh, matters or anything but it was uh, it, it was interesting that uh, let's just say that uh, they tease pitch black and but they have some more uh, beats to cover after that uh, but but it wasn't that it uh, got lost on me i want to untangle it a little bit more which is a good thing uh, so yeah, so I don't have anything else to say other than well, the the whole il il mare, by the way, is Italian, so it means apparently the sea. So that's what he names the seaside house, which is the the setting of the story. So that's how that connects to it. Do, do you know offhand if the Korean title is uh, means something else, or they it means uh, the sea as well in Korean? It just it, it just essentially it's it's the. Korean for the sea, you know, it's just and, they, and they've named it the Italian name because it's a cool name, I guess. It sticks. <laughs> well, 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 the hope, well, the hope was that it would stick, but uh, hey. 
Uh, so uh, that's uh, I'll conclude it. Uh, 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 a deserved uh, a little classic from uh, those um, early days of uh, Korean cinema. So um, if you like me, maybe weren't that quite on board with uh, the early goings of John Ji Hyun in Masasa Girl, for instance, and haven't seen anything else, then uh, take a sh- uh, take a chance on this because uh, it certainly is uh, a worthy showcase. And as I said, when she does engage in uh, melodramatic scenes, or scene really, it's only one, it uh, it feels deserved to have a little bit of an emotional breakdown there. It doesn't look in insecure, certainly supported by a secure director to, to get uh, the moments balanced and right, and that therefore shows off in her performance so so, uh, so yeah recommend it so anything else you want to say from the film or any closing words uh, my closing words are do please check it out it's known as a classic of new korean cinema for a reason and that reason is well deserved uh, so as for availability an hd version of filmary is available digitally on us amazon a, a couple of dvd editions came out in korea at the time with plentiful extras that were expectedly not subtitled um, there was later a two-pack reissue of filmary with the lake house so you you got two for a price of one i guess uh, ebay holds a couple of expensive editions including a taiseng edition for the us that i think was uh, it was certainly not korean it might have been cantonese and mandarin uh, yeah. uh, dual language or possibly only mandarin which is obviously not a good trade-off for a sync sound korean film uh, but that's perhaps what they uh, had the rights to do a taiseng in that case uh, the German DVD edition is affordable if you don't need subtitles. Uh, uh, Thai editions are somewhat affordable on Amazon US. Uh, so th- there's a couple of things out there. There are also signs of a Warner Brothers Blu-ray for Korea that might have been out there in limited fashion, but it's showing up as out of print currently. W- wonder what they did. Uh, w- wonder what kind of limited edition they did at the time in Korea. They they always did fancy limited editions. Oh, this was this was at the time when you know. You know me, I'm a fan of really quirky, odd box sets, and there were, I think at the time... Mittens? Did, did you get mittens with it? You got, there was a box that came out, a big box with mittens in it, believe it or not. Was it really? I mean, I just took yeah, a shot honestly, in the dark. Yeah, yeah, there was. <laughs> and, and it was a box, it was, you know, a box that was two foot across, it was huge. They did a, a three-disc version they did a two-disc fold-out version. There, there were endless versions of this. I ended up luckily getting hold of the two-disc version. It was the only one I could find. But its uh, packaging is just stunningly beautiful. Um, it folds out into, uh, you know, essentially the lake house strewn right across under the discs. It's beautiful. The one thing I will say about all those original versions is the subtitles are atrocious. You'll be able to understand it all, but if you're if you're into English grammar, you're gonna be going ooh ooh ooh. Normally, that standard was pretty decent in Korea, um, so I don't know why that is. Uh, the the HD version had the occasional spelling error, but nothing rampant. Well, you know the version. The version I have, and it has been noted. You know, I mean, even Darcy on KoreanFilm.org made a point of saying, you know, the the version, the original versions, yeah, uh, 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 bad subtitles. There are 
portion you will understand what's being said you will but there are portions where they're you know they're referring to him and they actually call him her it's it's that someone doing it who who wasn't you know they were obviously korean with a good grasp of english but they weren't english with a good grasp of korean which is much more the case now when they when they subtitle stuff they'll get you know they'll get somebody like darcy packet who you know is western to make sure the English is is spot on, but that's it. By the by, it's still it doesn't detract from the film. It's just just worth noting, I think. Give it a give it a look. See, perhaps on Amazon, it's not expensive to buy it or rent it uh, in HD, and uh, it's a good way to watch it uh, if you if you're keen. Uh, but uh, we are going to sign off, as we've hinted at. We're going to do a special uh, website exclusive bonus episode. A discussion on uh, the remake, The Lake House, starring Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock. And uh, yes, we, we've stated that we weren't fans of it, but we, we're going to elaborate uh, on our views as we should in the special bonus episode. So you can only get that on website uh, on the website, podcastonfire.com. So follow us if you want to. So we thank you beforehand and we will thank you on that very special uh, bonus episode that you, that you did so. So um, it, it's a little uh, torturous thing I do. To Paul Quinn that uh, want to do Ilmer? Yes! Well, there's a little caveat. Yeah, <laughs> You're going to have to do the yeah. lake house as well. No! Damn it. He got me oh, again. He got me again. Sigh, sigh, sigh. Uh, but uh, we'll uh, get to that. So follow us to podcastonfire.com and uh, check that out at the time of release of this episode. But uh, we're going to conclude this uh, discussion of Ilmeri. And uh, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, go to podcastonfire.com. Check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, subscribe to us on our Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Stitcher Radio, Podomy, uh, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. So I'm going to keep it brief. Angle Celluloid is your website to plug, so the floor is yours. Yeah, well, as I say, I'm Hankel Sengeloy. Thanks for listening. I could give you all the Facebook and Twitter things, but just go to the, the site's main page. and They're all there. With a single click, you'll be transported across time. Let's see what I did there. Thanks very much for listening. And uh, indeed, so we're going to sign off. I've been Kenny B. And with me was uh, Paul Quinn, who's already said goodbye. So let's let's say goodbye permanently. Thank you for um, enjoying. The, hopefully you enjoyed the discussion on Ian Mary. Where regardless of what year you're listening to it, we're here in 2022. Perhaps you'll listen to us on to, uh, in uh, 2024, but you can only contact us <coughs> in 2024. Because magic isn't real! Yes, indeed. <laughs> okay, bye-bye, folks. Cheers. See you, guys. <laughs> <laughs>